Hi, this is Wild Nick Brown, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Can you believe this is the 460th episode of Focus on Metal? It's crazy. They just keep ticking by. Just happened to notice that as I was uh, saving this file, working on it, and I was like, holy crap, 460. Of course, that isn't counting any of the special editions and all that stuff either. That's just a straight weekly episode. So I don't know. We're probably up in the 470 or somewhere else in that in that neighborhood. But anyways, hope everyone's staying safe out there and hopefully looking forward to once again a weekly dose of that which we call Focus on Metal. And this week, got an author as our guest. Uh, we have uh, had Martin Popoff and the bonus episode uh, a week or so ago talking all about his two new books, Anthem, Rush in the 70s, as well as Denim and Leather, The First 10 Years of Saxon. And, uh, you know, after a great episode last week with Michael Alago, we are back to an author again this week as we talk to Christopher P. Hilton. And he has authored a book called The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal. So roughly 450 pages of uh, talk all about uh, his favorite decade of music. And as you'll find out in Richie's chat with Christopher book could have been a hell of a lot longer. He's been working on it for a while, off and on, and lots and lots of stuff. Called that page count down to 448 pages. Apparently, the book is selling pretty well, doing pretty well at Amazon as well. Uh, All five-star reviews so far for that one. So uh, we'll have a good dig in with Christopher all about, you know, how he came to do this, what he's thinking about it, some of the bands that, uh, you know, he didn't include in there as well and why. So a good dig in as usual from Richie. So fairly long interview this week. So without any further ado, why don't we launch right into Richie's chat with Christopher Hilton all about the rise, fall and rebirth of hair metal. Hello, Chris Hi, Chris. It's Richie here for the interview. Isn't now a good time? Hey, Richie. Yes, how are you doing? I'm good. So, first question I have to ask is, uh, why, why did you t- do the book in the first place? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, you're aware at this point, I mean, I'm a super fan of the genre, right? Um, and I've read tons of articles and album reviews and concert reviews, and, you know, there's plenty of books written by individual bands or individual uh, autobiographers, you know, you can read them about whether it's Steven Tyler or Sebastian Bach or whatever, but I had never seen a book that connected it all, right? An overarching story of the genre itself. And I thought, you know, this is a, a unique, spectacular story of interest. You know, it had a, a huge rise to prominence, uh, you know, a pretty much an unprecedented fall from grace, and, and then a bona fide rebirth of sorts in the new millennium. And, you know, so many people still follow the genre and it has a huge, healthy staying power, I just figured there's never been anything to put it together. It's really the book I always wanted someone else to write, so I could read, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, fans of this type of music, uh, particularly, you know, we love expressing our views and discussing our views. And, you know, if you have a view, you kind of want to know what other people think of it. So, you know, why not a book, right? Why not me? Mm. Uh, for better or worse, uh, this might be the only topic I'm qualified to have a, a so-called expert opinion on. So <laughs> it just seemed like a good thing to do. Yeah. So, Christopher, had you ever written a book before? I hadn't really, nothing I had published. I had uh, dabbled in informal writings before, uh, but nothing I had tried to self-publish now. And really, when I first started writing this, I had no intention to publish it. I really just wanted to write it for my own enjoyment. And as I got further along, uh, you know, I had told some people about it. Some people had looked at some early parts of it and said, hey, I, I think people would really enjoy this. So I said, okay, you know, and it kind of talked me into putting it out there. Mm. So, so when did you start writing it? Uh, you know, I had pieces of it that went back quite a ways, but really the bulk of the work uh, was done over the past, I'd say, 18 months. Okay. And what sort of research did you have to do on it? Did you have um, did you have a lot of old magazines and interviews anyway, or was a lot of it done, like, just using the internet? You know, I mean, it's not that it wasn't researched, but I almost, it sounds like I almost intentionally didn't want to, quote-unquote, research it, right? I didn't want to approach this from, you know, someone that can or anyone that could write the book, right? Because anyone could look up all these facts, 
and, and spit them back out as a researcher. But I wanted to really approach it from a fan's point of view, right? And what I thought other fans would be interested in. So certainly, you know, most of these things were already in my head. I had to go back to look up some things such as, you know, I knew each of the year's album came out, of course, but specific days I didn't have in my memory or, you know, I might've known that an album sold three or 4 million versus eight or 9 million, but I had to go back up and look at the exact numbers. But really, it's just a matter of sitting down and looking at my music collection, right? I mean, I've got thousands and thousands of CDs here uh, and just looking at, hey, what were the most important parts as the genre and all? And I did look back at some old magazines and pulled out some quotes that I thought would be applicable and interesting. Uh, but I really didn't want to be one of those guys who just went out to Wikipedia and cut and paste the story, right? That wasn't what I was aiming for. I think anybody could have done that, really. Mm. Did you ever think of um, maybe reaching out to a publicist or some of the musicians directly to see if they'd come on and maybe give you some quotes for some of the albums? I did. Uh, you know, I, I thought about, you know, what could I do that would be of most interest to the reader? And I had some of that lined up, to be honest, and it might be surprising because the book's already pretty big as it is. It's uh, just over 400 pages. Uh, but the original outline for this thing was close to 800 pages. Right? Wow. It was wow. crazy. <laughs> I knew that no one, even the most hardcore fans, probably wanted to read 800 pages worth of stuff. Uh, so I really tried to pare it down to the things that I felt were of most interest and relative, you know, the making of the music. I wanted people to know about the albums and they know what songs are on the albums, and I'm sure they have nostalgia for them. But I tried to offer tidbits of, hey, what really went on behind the scenes, you know, things they might not know. Um, you know, most of this music came out when there was no Internet. And so now, you know, fans have a greater knowledge of everything that goes on with an artist. But at the time, sure, you had some magazines if you were lucky, and maybe you saw a picture of the band when they came to your town to tour. But you never knew really what was going on because you just didn't have social media and the Internet to know these things. So a lot of this stuff is really yet to be discovered. And that's what I wanted to offer. Mm. Was there any particular uh, part of the history of, of hair metal? And I'm like you, I hate the term. Um, <laughs> That um, that you felt hadn't really been addressed before. Well, you know, I think you know, true fans, uh, aside from casual fans, uh, you know, most people probably have the perception that you know, when grunge came out in the early '90s, that hair metal kind of died at that point and just went away. You know, and and of course that's not really the case. Uh, you know, hair metal existed beyond the behind the scenes all throughout the '90s, right? And a lot of different bands tried a lot of different things. Certainly, a number of them broke up. Uh, but a lot of them soldiered through with a lot of music that the casual fan probably doesn't even know existed, let alone the fact that it experienced somewhat of a rebirth as we went into the turn of the century. Uh, a lot of bands got back together, a lot of new albums, the style of music kind of returned to that you know, more happy-go-lucky, optimistic type of uh, style. And so I think for, for people that just knew hair metal in the 80s, uh, they might not know that there's a lot after that. Mm. And you're right, the term the term hair metal is polarizing, right? And it was a difficult decision for me. I mean, on one hand it was, on one hand it wasn't, to use hair metal as the term of the book. Uh, you read the book, right? So you know the very first sentence of the first chapter yep. says, I have a confession to make. I hate the term hair metal, right? So why uh -huh. in the world would I use it? Um, and again, casual fans, you know, they may be surprised to know that the term hair metal wasn't even invented until many years after the genre's heyday, right? Certainly not before 1990. In the 80s, I'm pretty sure no one ever said the word hair metal. Up until that point, it was all really heavy metal. You know, and people would scoff at that now, thinking, how could you possibly attribute, you know, a band like Poison, the same label with a band like Metallica? But at the time, it was all heavy metal, right? Hair metal wasn't really invented as a term until after grunge, when people needed a, a more disparaging, pejorative term. And of course, you know, fans of the style you know, reacted poorly to this because it implied that the genre was incredible or the genre wasn't about the music. It was all about hair and style with no substance. Uh, you know, bands in particular hated this, right? I mean, if you say the word hair metal to, to people like Sebastian Bach or Joe Elliott or Nikki Six, right? I mean, they'll tear your stomach out through your throat, your throat if you're lucky. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, nowadays, there's two things that are certainly true, right? Mm. I mean, one, there's no better universal identifier for this kind of music, right? Like it or not, uh, you know, if I told you I wrote a book about heavy metal or hard rock or, or even glam metal, you probably wouldn't exactly know for sure what that was about. But you tell people you write a book about hair metal, well, they know what bands that's about. So it's a good identifier. And then I think the term has become less derogative, at least to some over the years, right? It's evolved, at least in my view, more towards a, a happily nostalgic term. Uh, so again, not all people agree with that. And, you know, I think hardcore fans might bristle at the use of it, but 
uh, you know, for right or wrong, hair metal it was. I find it interesting that when people talk about hair metal, if you're a casual fan, they'll lump Living Colour and King's X and Dan Reed Network. They'll just lump anything, Saigon Kick, they'll just lump any band from that era at all in with the hair yeah. metal bands, even though they're, they all sound wildly different from everybody else. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, right? And there's been some real spirited debates on this topic as to, you know, what bands were and what bands weren't hair metal. I think you're right. The, the overwhelming segment of the populace would say, hey, any 80s band that had long hair was hair metal, right? And they're yeah. perfectly comfortable with that. Uh, you know, you have a second group of people that kind of put the partition in it and says, well... You know, hair metal was everything rock in the 80s, but the real heavy metal band, you know, the Metallicas, Megadeth, Slayer. And then you get a further segment of people that have an even more restrictive taxonomy, right? So these people, the first thing they'll do is they'll say, well, Van Halen and Aerosmith weren't hair metal, right? Because Van Halen was in the 70s, Aerosmith was in the 70s. And, but, you know, if you look at Aerosmith, you know, a band that really launched their comeback in the mid 80s with Permanent Vacation and merging, you know, melodic commercial type of music with heavy metal, uh, you know, there wasn't anything more hair metal than that, right? And Van Halen, it could legitimately be argued, had the, the first real blueprint for this, right? With the flamboyant guitarist and the flashy frontman uh, and the outrageous songs, uh, these people were off to say, okay, well, Guns N' Roses, that was the end of hair metal, right? Because Guns N' Roses were certainly too real or they were too authentic, uh, but you look at a video for Welcome to the Jungle and you look at Axl Rose's hair, right? And it's all, it's teased out in perfect hair metal fashion. Or you look at a video like Paradise City uh, and Axl's got a, a white leather jacket and white leather pants on like Warren had in their Heaven video. Mm. So, you know, people, and then you really get a fourth group of people. And these people can conjure all kinds of defenses as to why bands were not hair metal. And these are sometimes the most passionate bands, right? So I have an appreciation for it. Uh, but things you'll hear as well, you know, Skid Row wasn't too, ha- they wasn't hair metal. They were. Chris. Hello, Richie. I don't know what happened. It just cut out. No, oh, I'm sorry about that. No, it's okay. <laughs> so. Where did I lose you? You're, I think you were talking about Sebastian Bach and them being classified as hair metal, Skid Row. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a, a group of people that are really passionate, you know, that their favorite band couldn't possibly be hair metal, right? So they would say Skid Row was, was far too heavy when you look at an album like Slave to the Grind, or they would say, you know, White Snake was more of a, a 70s blues rock band, or, you know, LA Guns was more sleaze metal, or they'd look at White Lion and say, well, you know, they had songs like Cry for Freedom or When the Children Cry, and they were too political. Or, uh, you know, Cinderella was really just a blues-based band. Uh, you know, there's always a reason why these people's bands couldn't be called, possibly be called hair metal. And these are some of the most passionate bands, so I can appreciate the perspective. But at the end of the day, right, it was inevitably all the same type of music outside of bands like Poison, Quiet Riot, Rat, uh, Firehouse, Trickster, Danger, Danger. Now, these are some of the only bands that almost everyone agrees uh, are hair metal, but... At the end of the day, there's no definitive truth on it, right? It's always a fun discussion depending on who you're you're talking to. Mm. I, I think a lot of it is the image because you look at 80s Kiss the, around the Asylum record. You can classify them as hair metal. They had all the makeup on and and the clothing. They they were lumped in with the Motley Crews, even though they you know they came from the 70s with their personas and and, and the makeup. Absolutely right. I mean, look at a picture of Van Halen anytime around 1988 and try and convince yourself they're not air metal, right? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the 70s bands, um, they had to conform in order to, to stay alive because a, a band you don't cover in the book that I'm a big fan of, and I don't know how big a fan you are, but you look at Y&T, they came from yeah. the, the, the late 70s. And the first couple of albums in the early 80s, Black Tiger and Mean Streak, they were more or less street clothes. But when you put on Down for the Count... I think it was in 85 or 86, they had all the, the, the hair and, and, and the, the loud clothing and, and everything else. They, they were all doing it. Oh, sure. And I'm a huge fan of Mean Streak, by the way. Uh, and a lot of this was about MTV, right? At the time, with no internet, uh, the main avenue for exposure was MTV. And if you were going to be on MTV, you had to look the part, right? You had to look pretty. Uh, so a lot of these bands that probably had no interest and that type of thing were really forced into it, either by their management, their record label, or just the need to be successful. Uh, but, you know, one thing was true in the 80s, right? If you wanted to be in a successful rock band, you had to have long, big, high hair. Uh, there was just no getting around it. 
Mm. Did you think at times that the image overshadowed the music, that the bands and the management put more emphasis on the image and that sometimes it, to the detriment of some of the songs? Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, outside of the, the you know, artistic integrity of the musicians, right, there was a, a commercial engine behind all of it. Right. And that's going to focus itself on on marketing at the end of the day and how do they best appeal to the general public. Right. So uh, you take uh, a band like uh, Enough's Enough. Right. I'm sure you're familiar with Enough's Enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a power pop band at their start uh, who really had nothing to do with, with hair metal. Um, but yet you see their first video, new thing. I'm sure you've seen it, right? It was mm-hmm. full of all splashy colors and as much hairspray as the bank of mustard. You know, I've spoken to Donnie V, right? And they had no interest in any of that. But of course, the label said, hey, if you want to sell records, this is the way you've got to look. This is the way you have to market yourself. Uh, so I think that was a big part of it. Uh, outside of that, I think a lot of these bands were more than happy to emulate their heroes of the 70s, right? This is no different than really what, you know, David Bowie, or Alice Cooper had been doing at the time. Now, of course, they weren't vilified for it. But again, everything's, uh, you know, 2020 in hindsight, right? At the time, there was nothing crazy about the look and the feel. Uh, you know, really, uh, I'm not aware of any musical genre that 20 years later doesn't look a little silly in terms of its fashion sense and retrospect. Mm. So so in the 80s, when you were listening to this stuff, what what was your format of choice? Was it, was it album, t- cassette, or CD? Well, I really ran the gamut, right, due to, I'm in my mid-40s now, uh, so I started out on vinyl, uh, not very long with it. I think cassettes had come out just as I was beginning to expand my catalog, right? So there was cassettes, and then, of course, there was CD, and and now, unfortunately, we we really lack the physical media for the most part in totality. But yes, I certainly had vinyl records at the time. And um, have you kept them all, or did you get rid of them? I don't have any more of my vinyl left. Isn't that a shame? Right? Oh. I do have the tapes. I don't know why I keep the cassette tapes, but probably for nostalgia. Uh, but no, I don't have any vinyl remaining. And, uh, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed uh, audiophile, right? So uh, the extent that vinyl offers you a little warmth and bottom end that, I mean, thinking back to music in the 80s, uh, a lot of the production focus wasn't on the bottom end at that time anyway, right? It was on the guitars and the vocals. Uh-huh. And then, of course when the format moved to compact disc in the early 90s, uh, you know, it kind of exacerbated right that because the initial technology transferring music from the master tapes to CD was really a, a kind of thin-sounding, overly bright result that just really magnified the fact that there wasn't much bottom end. And so a lot of the CDs, at least the initial pressings, uh, tend to lack a little of that warmth. Uh, now, some of that's been rectified over the years with, with remasters and as such, and you know, some of them will make it better. Sometimes it'll make it worse. But a lot of the master tapes, you know, have either degraded or aren't around from that time period. So uh, to really get the listening experience, uh, you really have to do track down some of those vinyl records. Are you a fan of bands from that era who go in and re-record the albums and release them now with a with a modern sound? You know, I mean, certainly, you know, I, I appreciate what they're trying to do. Uh, and a lot of times I'll look forward to it, right? Because uh, take a band like Twisted Sister. Uh, Twisted Sister, I'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar. Uh, they recorded the, the Stay Hungry album, which is really the production was not overly beefy on. Uh, it had some great rock songs, for sure. And they recorded it a few years ago and called it Still Hungry. And the band said, well, we want to do this because we felt the original production never did it justice. And we want to make this, you know, hard and heavy and really smashing. Every time it's been done, for me at least, you, you just can't seem to reproduce it. You, you can't get that that original feel, that original energy, uh, you know, and sometimes it's for better or worse, right? Some of these musicians play a thousand times better than they did back in their heyday. Others, you know, particularly the vocalists, may struggle to reproduce some of those high notes. Uh, but even the best re-recordings, honestly, I don't think I, I've heard one yet that improved upon the original. That's probably just my subjective opinion. Uh, I don't know if you have different thoughts on that. The only one I can think of, and I, I'm, I'm setting the bar pretty high here, but I'm a fan of Striper, and they did an album of, called Second Coming. Now, they didn't re-record the, the, whole, the whole albums, but they re-recorded certain tracks off each album, and one, it had the same four guys that recorded the songs, more or less. Um, and Michael Sweet can still sing. I think a lot of it. Has he to really do, can. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the singer, and I think a lot of it has to do with who's in the band now when they're recording it. Because a lot of these guys, they don't have the same band. 
when they're re-recording oh, yeah. the songs. And th- I think that definitely hurts. It does. And you're right. I mean, the singer's key, right? And certainly Michael Sweet can still bring it with the best of them. Uh, you take even a band, you know, of accomplished musicians like Def Leppard, right? Def Leppard uh, didn't have the rights to their songs. And I think uh, several years ago, re-recorded them with the intent to make exact mirror copies, right? And they did three or four of these and they issued them on iTunes and they said, hey, we're going to make this sound exactly like it was in the day. Now, first of all, that's a hard thing for a band like Def Leppard because uh, a record like uh, Hysteria is really a studio production to begin with. Uh, and you listen to the re-recordings and you say, well, yep, the notes are exactly the same. Uh, maybe Joe Elliott's voice doesn't have as much spark, but still, I think everybody agreed there's just something that's not there. Something, you know, the lightning in the bottle you just can't recapture to some extent. Yeah, I think a lot of it is how you feel about it because our music and, and, and the hair metal and hard rock and all that, so I get into it in the 80s, and I've rediscovered vinyl. I didn't have a, I didn't have a record player for over twenty years, and I had all my vinyl in Ireland. I bought it from let's say eighty six to ninety one, and I left it over there. And and then I went into CDs for about twenty odd years. And when I moved to the states nine years ago, the vinyl came over with me, but I didn't play any of it. And at Christmas time, I got a vinyl player and. I have the stuff on CD, but I'd reach for it now on vinyl first for some reason, because the way it makes me feel, the way it makes, you know, the way it sounds, and you can't capture that with a re-record now. You just can't do it. It's it, it's to do with how I feel about it, not really with how good a performance they're doing on it as well. That's absolutely true, right? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, music exists to to make us feel, you know, emotions and feelings, and it's whatever resonates with you as a listener. Um, you know, to your point, uh, one of the lesser-known bands, I'm a huge fan of Pretty Boy Floyd, right? Uh, now, I didn't know them that well uh, at their beginnings, which were not so auspicious, uh, but they put out an album in, I think it was year 2000, and it was called Porn Stars, of all things. Uh, and it had some re-recordings of their older songs. That was the first Pretty Boy Floyd I had heard. Right now, almost any hardcore fan would tell you those re-recordings were not as good as their debut Leather Boys with Electric Toys albums. But for me, I prefer those because they're the first ones I heard. But that's where my memories are, to your point. Hmm. Hmm. So one of the great things you have in the book is you give your opinion on it. This is there's there's statistics in it, but you're not afraid to give your opinion on a lot of the albums, whether you like them or not. And I found that really refreshing. But one of the things that leaves you open for is the bands that are, you know, and I have a list here of bands that I think you left out of the book. Um, and I'm going to give you some, some of them now. And one of them, what the minute I read the chapter, I went, how can you leave Europe's The Final Countdown out of, <laughs> out of the chapter on, in 1986? Because that song was absolutely massive. When you when you talk about the hair metal genre, like that song is still a, a an iconic song for the whole genre. Oh, it absolutely was right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a good point about opinion, uh, and that's one of the things I wanted to make sure was in the book, right? Like I said, any any researcher could have presented the stories, right? Because a lot of them are known, or the sales figures and things like that. Um, you know, and the opinions, admittedly, they're all subjective, right? I mean, I would never say, hey this is a good album, that's a bad album, and if you feel differently or wrong, there's no such thing. Mm. Uh, but one of the things, you know, hair metal fans and really fans of all rock and roll like doing more than anything is discussing their likes and dislikes with other fans. Right? I mean, personally, I think it's beautiful when people have different uh, opinions about the quality of music. I love it when someone says to me, hey, my favorite Motley Crue album was this, and that happens to be the one I like the least. Right? Because I go back and listen to it. Hey, maybe there's something there that I wasn't picking up on the first time. And a lot of times there is. Right? No, not every time, right? Uh, but it, it's good to have differences of opinion. So, And yeah, that opens you up to a lot of things. Right? I mean, uh, some people are going to write off the book because they say, hey, they didn't like this album and I loved it. But clearly, uh, their opinion doesn't count for everything. And that's fine, right? I mean, no worries on that front. Uh, some people would argue that, you know, opinions anywhere in a biography are kind of like the scourge of journalism. Uh, and I get that, but I think it does add something. Uh, and absolutely, right? Europe, the final countdown, right? How can we talk about anything related to this genre without thinking of that? Um, to your point, back when this book was 800 pages long, gosh, you know, I really made an effort to try and cover every single band. And one of the hardest parts of writing is deciding what to take out, 
right? Because as a fan, it's like cutting off your own appendage when you remove a chapter on a certain band that you feel strongly about. But at the end of the day, I was determined to keep this right around 125,000 words. And I, I don't even think I kept my promise on that. I think it's about 135,000. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yes, you certainly, uh, people need to be aware of the final countdown, right? That that opening section is about as iconic as anything you'll hear from the genre, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, another band, and I don't know whether you left them out because you don't like them or you don't consider them hair metal, but... You had the four classifications in the beginning in the book, and the classification you used was like a heavy band that wasn't heavy like Slayer, Megadeth, or Metallica. Um, are you not a fan of Wasp? Like, do you consider them a hair metal band? Yeah, they're probably closer to hair metal than someone like Megadeth, right? Of course, this is all opinion. Uh, but, you know, of any other, uh, you know, you see these uh, VH1 specials and things like that. I mean, Wasp fits in the genre, in my opinion, no doubt. I was never really a huge fan. Uh, that's not to say I didn't appreciate some of their music, and certainly they were as talented as anybody in some regards. Uh, so yeah, they were on the list, uh, but they were they were edited. Let's just say that. Hmm. What about Night Ranger? Night Ranger, right? Tough call. And this is the beauty of this discussion. Uh, you know, which bands were, which ones were. Probably the average fan is going to put them right in the genre, especially with uh, the huge. You know, take a song like Sister Christian, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. Power ballads, a lot of people somewhat only know hair metal for the power ballad, right? And that's, you know, going to make any list of, of hair metal power ballads. Uh, but to a large extent, their music crossed over towards more the pop range. Now, that's not to say they weren't fully capable, uh, you know, of producing some guitar tones that were distinctly heavy metal. Uh, but, you know, the line has to get drawn somewhere, I guess, and Night Ranger fell more towards the pop side of the equation. Mm. Another band that you mentioned in the book but you don't really cover them extensively like a lot of the other ones is Dokken. Um, yes. I, I would definitely consider them a hair metal band, especially when you look at like the first four records up for Back for the Attack. They were definitely one of the biggest bands in the genre, in my opinion. Oh, there's no doubt, right? And Dokken was, I'm glad you hit on that. Dokken was a singular point of uh, probably just difference of opinion, right? I was, for whatever reason, was never a huge Dokken fan. Right, but back in '84, uh, you know, with bands like Rat and Quiet Riot, uh, Twisted Sister, and Shout the Devil, I mean, that was hair metal, right? That was the whole thing. Uh, even a, a the song like Alone Again from Dokken, I generally would attribute the very first power ballad uh, of the genre to being Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home. Uh, but someone could make the argument that it was Alone Again, right? Uh, and a lot of people are huge fans of Dokken. Uh, personally, it was for whatever reason. Uh, not due to a, a talent gap or anything. It was just a band that I could never really get into as much as the others, although I certainly have their CDs sitting here in front of me, and uh, a song like Mr. Scary will inevitably come up on my playlist and, and make me smile. Because hmm. when when you talked about the 90s with hair metal, one of the albums I was hoping you'd bring up was Dysfunctional in 95, because that was one of the few albums from that era, from bands from that era, that went gold. And um, I don't think you mentioned that record at all in the book. I did not. You know, uh, I didn't, I, for some reason, didn't even get a footnote, right? But that's true. There weren't a lot of, of albums in the 90s that still managed to register on the sales schedule. Uh, probably the last of them was the last big, really bombastic hair metal album in the 90s was probably Def Leppard's Adrenaline, right? Mm. And that was still a multi platinum seller in 1992, just right before the entire. Uh, four fell out. Uh, but there were others. I think Firehouse's three album uh, with the, the big ballads from that record uh, was probably the last hit hair metal single, right, from bands of that genre. But Dysfunctional, yeah, I mean, you can't forget about that. I like the record, to be honest. It didn't get a lot of press at the time. There probably were a lot of people that didn't know it existed. Uh, but, you know, I'm always happy to give it a spin. Mm. Well, what did you make of um, some of the 80s bands? You touched on some of them in the book. I know, uh, and you're not a fan of Ultraphobic by Warrant. I like that record. Um, I do not like Belly to Belly at all. But what about Lynch Mob, Smoke This, or Scorpions Eye to Eye? I don't think you mentioned them at all. Like, Smoke This tried to be like a rap metal thing. Yeah, right. There were some crazy sounding albums, right? Yeah. In the 90s. Uh, I'm actually probably more of an Ultraphobic uh, fan than I let on, right? The only reason it probably seems like. I'm not as because it gets compared to to you know Dirty Rotten Filthy Stink of Rich or Cherry Pie, uh, but Ultraphobic had the basis of some good songs, uh, no doubt about it. 
belly to belly, you're right. I mean, that thing's out in left field at best. Uh, you know, I think Jenny Lane was certainly an amazingly capable songwriter. And for the style he was going for in that album, uh, you know, it might not be bad songwriting, but it just certainly didn't offer anything uh, of appeal probably for fans of traditional hair metal, right? For people that are looking for the down boys, uh, they certainly weren't any better to be found on belly to belly. Probably not archophobic either. Uh, oh. Scorpions record. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that were present in the nineties that certainly held value, even if they weren't exactly the style we heard in the eighties. Right. I mean, some of the, uh, I'm a huge fan of the, the self-titled Motley Crue album. Right. I mean, Motley Crue fans for the most part, generality of them hated this record, right? It didn't sound anything like Dr. Feelgood or Shout at the Devil. Uh, personally, I think it's an amazing record. But at the same time, I try not to compare it to Dr. Feelgood because it's a different animal, right? Uh, and then you move further into the 90s and you take a, a record like Generation Swine from Motley Crue. Uh, now, that's some strange stuff, right? It's, it's much more alternative and grungy uh, than it is anything related to hair metal. And there was lots of albums like that, right? Death Leopard put out Flank. Right, which sounded nothing like Hysteria or Adrenaline. Um, you had some of the, the so-called second-tier bands, right? Uh, Danger Danger, one of the most hair metal bands of them all, put out a record called Dawn in the mid-'90s with a different singer. And if that wasn't grunge, I don't know what was. Uh, you know, L.A. Guns put out a, a record called American Hardcore in 1996, I think it was, that was closer to Pantera than it was anything else. Um, you know, Vince Neil in the mid-'90s put out uh, almost a rap rock record, right? Before there was uh, a Linkin Park or a Kid Rock or things like that. Um, so a lot of these bands tried to change their style um, with varying degrees of success in the 90s. But there's probably more albums out there than people know about. I think a lot of people have to decide, are the band going there because that's the direction they were going to go in eventually? Or are they just chasing something to be like everybody else? Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I think that's it's a tough question because I'm the Motley Crue album with Karabi is my favorite Motley Crue album, and, and I have all the early stuff and I have all the new stuff, and I'm a fan of Motley Crue, but I love the Karabi record, and I think that's where they were going with the sound anyway, that they weren't ch chasing anything. But when you look at the likes of Belly to Belly and Smoke This. That's definitely, I think, the band chasing a sound to be trendy and to be relevant. Yeah, and that's really what's hard to determine sometimes, right? If, if some of these bands, you know, got introduced to a different sound, right, and it resonated with them and they wanted to incorporate it into their music, right? I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't fault them for that, right? They were evolving just like anybody. But certainly some of them said, hey, we have to change just because we have to remain commercial. Um, you know, and Belly to Belly might have been the best example of that. And quite frankly, it was a style and a decision that I never understood, right? I mean, the thing was, uh, a band like Warrant, you know, they could have produced the best alternative slash grunge album that was ever made. And it still wasn't going to sell, right? Oh. Because the grunge fans were going to see it had Warrant's name on it, and they were never going to listen to it. And fans of Warrant generally didn't like that style of music, right? So, you know, who exactly were they aiming to please? It's hard for me to believe some of these bands thought that strategy would work. It, it's really not just retrospect and, and hindsight, the benefit of that would tell you that. I think it was probably, you know, managers and, and accountants and people like that that said, hey, you have to evolve. But really, I mean, for a lot of these bands, you know, there, there was no style of music that they were going to be able to evolve to and still be successful. Hmm. You know, we're talking about Warren. There was this famous story uh, where in the mid-90s, Warren wrote a song, right? And they thought this was a great song and they wanted to submit it to a record label. Um, and they did, right? And it wasn't exactly the hair metal style. And the publicist and the record label exec heard the song and they said, wow, this is fantastic. Um, and they told their management not to put their name on intentionally when it was submitted. And they said, hey, I got to know who this band is right now so we could sign them, you know, get some marketing behind them and they'll be the next biggest thing. We love this song. And then the management said, okay, well, you know what? It's Warren. And then two minutes later, they said, nope, don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> right? and that, was just, that was just the reality of the situation. <laughs> yeah. Christopher, did you consider putting Queensryche in the book? I did, right? Because I'm a pretty big fan. Uh, and an album like Mind Crime, or certainly Empire, right? You listen to Empire, and that's a, it's hard to say that's not a hair metal album. 
but most people would probably look at Queen's Rights music and say, hey, this is a more progressive type of feel. Maybe even early on with Rage for Order, this is more of a heavy metal type of feel. Uh, you see, I gave him a nod right at the start that said, hey, some of these people are just on the borderline of what might be hair metal. But at the time, you know, uh, w- when the video came on for Jet City Woman, there was no difference between that and Motley Crue for 99 out of 100 people, right? Hmm. Hmm. So what what was your take on European bands that had American singers to replace the iconic singers from them? And I'll give you two examples. Accept is one when they got David Reese in to, to replace Udo. And the other one is Mike Facera, who they brought in for Soldier of Fortune for loudness. Um, did you consider putting those bands in the book at all? Yeah, Accept was probably on the more heavy metal side of it, right? Uh, loudness, of course, was probably straight up hair metal. There's no doubt about that. Uh, you know, an amazing group of musicians, uh, especially with the, the guitar offerings on some of those records. Um, you know, I think a lot of people chase the sound from behind, right? When you think about hair metal up through, you know, 1989, I guess maybe even 1990, uh, there were, you know, a dozen or so bands that were really leading the way on this thing. And then, of course, as with anything, you know, as you came to 1990, 1991, 1992, uh, there were literally dozens and dozens and dozens of copycats, the wrong word, uh, of bands that just saturated the genre, right? And it's not to say these bands were any less talented, because in a lot of ways, they weren't, right? Uh, bands like Firehouse or Trickster or, or other types of groups like Steelheart or even Slaughter to some extent, right? Um, you know, fantastic bands, in my humble opinion, but they weren't exactly reinventing the wheel. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I mean, it was a standard template at the time. Uh, you know, bands, they looked the same. They sounded the same. The music sounded the same. Uh, the first single right off the album was always a big rock song uh, to, to go and get the, get the hardcore fans of the genre. The second single was the big sweeping power ballad uh, that went and got the females. And then the third single was more the, the melodic commercial type of song, right? I mean, you saw all bands following this formula. And I think that, as much as anything, uh, you know, kind of caused the downfall. People always say the most popular statement is that grunge killed hair metal, or more specifically, Nirvana killed hair metal, right? That's the accepted truth. And I think to a large extent that is true, but it's not the whole truth, right? I mean, bands were changing their sound long before 1992. Uh, you take a, a record like Flesh and Blood from Poison. I mean, sure, Poison was still Poison, uh, but it wasn't exactly, look what the cat dragged in, right? Or Cinderella at the time put out Heartbreak Station. It was probably more of a country album than it was Night Song. Uh, Slaves to the Grind by Skid Row sounded nothing like hair metal to a large degree, or especially not, you know, a song like 18 in Life or I'll Remember You. Um, even, you know, Bon Jovi, one of the biggest hair bands of them all, John Bon Jovi did the Young Gun soundtrack, right? And that did not exactly sound like Slippery and Wet. Um, so the sound was changing on its own. Uh, and I, I think, you know, people were changing, right? I mean, rock music inherently is about rebellion. Kids want to rebel. Uh, there's no rebellion in going out and liking what's already commercially successful, right? There's no contrarianism in that. Uh, and grunge really became more connected to a generation that was experiencing a different political and socioeconomic climate versus, you know, the 80s, right? The 80s were a time of you know, excitement and expansion and excess, right? More and more and more of everything and growth. Uh, and the music reflected that. The fashion reflected that. Uh, the 90s were more grim and somber, right? Uh, you know, the economy wasn't doing as well. Um, grunge just felt more real, I think, to that younger generation. It was the perfect medium if you were angry or sad or confused or depressed. And kids started to connect with this, right? I mean, these huge spectacles on stage that were Motley Crue concerts, um, Sure, I think people appreciated them for what they were, but they couldn't see themselves as that. You know, in their day-to-day lives, it was easier to look at a guy on stage that uh, was playing a more simplified three-chord structure that you could do in your own garage, you know, that looked like you, that dressed like you, uh, and that sang about things that were related to your life, right? You know, as far as any kind of angst or depression. So at the end of the day, I think there were a lot of things that, that caused hair metal's downfall. One of the things that was unique about it was you know, really how quickly and dramatically it happened, right? All genres of music come to a close, right? They have shelf life. There's no doubt about it. Uh, People want to move on to other things, but really from a commercial standpoint, uh, maybe outside of disco, I've never been aware of a genre of music that was just thrown out with the trash so quickly, uh, you know, 
bands that were selling millions of albums just a couple of years prior suddenly couldn't sell out a show in your backyard. Right? Oh. Record labels wanted absolutely nothing to do with these bands. Uh, it was either grunge or nothing. Um, so it was it was really a dramatic turn at the time. You bring up one thing in that chapter about when grunge killed hair metal. Relatability is one thing you bring up in it. And I want to talk a minute about that because you said in the chapter that a lot of the youth of that time, they could relate to the bands, that the bands were the same as them. And that you bring up then that you know the economy wasn't doing so good. And one of the things I've always found about stuff like that is, um, how would I say it? If things are going like crap, you don't want to relate to the other people that you know think everything is going like crap. You want to put something on and and because a lot of hair metal is is escapism. That you know, did, did, you have all these rock stars like Coverdale and Axl Rose and Steven Tyler, and you know you can look up to them and it gets you out of the the world that we're in now for an hour or so when you listen to the record. And when when you look at today, there, there's no rock stars really left, that they're all gone. It's the same guys. I mean, actually, escapism is the perfect word, right? And for me, uh, that's exactly what the music was about, right? I didn't I didn't need to listen to, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain tell me about, uh, you know, God rest his soul, about how life was, you know, difficult and depressing, right? I mean... I could look around me if I wanted some of that. I needed something to, to uplift me out of that, right? And to your point, uh, uh, David Coverdale and Whitesnake and a spectacle like Stole the Night on stage in a big arena, uh, that was a way to, to kind of get away from the difficulties of daily life. So I think it depends on what the average fan was looking for at the time. Uh, some people wanted to embrace it, uh, and some people wanted to escape from it. I think but that, at the end of the day, go ahead. I think a lot of it, though, was... Um MTV just didn't show it anymore. Um, you had no choice. All they showed was the grunge bands. Oh, sure, right? They shoved it down your throat. I mean, there was a, a famous story, right? I mean, uh, even a band like Trickster, you know, it kind of gets written off as an afterthought. Um, Dial MTV was the popular show at the time. Uh, Trickster had three consecutive number ones on Dial MTV. Uh, so, you know, they were the hottest thing at the time. And then almost overnight, you know, when grunge came out, I mean... MTV dropped Dial MTV, right? And they said, we're dropping all formats that relate to this, and we're going to embrace grunge, we're going to embrace alternative. And a band like Trickster, who the week before, you know, for several weeks running, had the number one song, uh, not only did they not have the number one song anymore, but they were never played again on MTV ever again, right? I mean, MTV just said, listen, that's it, we're done, we only have one thing we're going to champion, and it's certainly not going to be air metal. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the marketing machine really dictates what people know and what they what they have exposure to. Yeah, the one thing I can say, coming from Ireland and, and being in Europe, a lot of the hair metal bands, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, the Warrants, the Tricksters, the Firehouses and all that, MTV didn't play them really at all. And over here, they were all over the radio and they were all over MTV. And even the radio over in, in Ireland and England didn't really play a lot of the rock bands. So... Your mainstream was my underground music. And sure. I I think that's that's one of the reasons that a lot of these bands have a following in Europe that maybe they lost for a while in the US. Um because we had to search and find them. They weren't just handed to us on MTV. We're gonna play Winger ten times a, a day, you know, for a week. Um, we had to actually go find them. And the one thing that actually got, got, I can only speak for myself, but the one thing that got me into the band was it was always the music because I couldn't see the videos. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. Right? In the U.S., it was different. Um, a lot of people don't realize, even outside of Europe, uh, you know, hair metal was still immensely popular in Asia in the mid-90s. Right, uh, hard to believe for some people, but a band like Steelheart and Firehouse could go over to Asia in mid '90s and sell out multiple nights in multiple countries. Right, where in the U.S., uh, you know, if you said the word Steelheart or Firehouse, uh, you know, you'd get laughed out of the room as quickly as they could look at you. Um, and so it was very different. And even today, uh, you know, when we talk about people say the new wave of hair metal or the new wave of sleaze metal, right? There's so many bands. Uh, today that emulate this style of music, um, but probably at least 80% of them 
are not from the U.S., right? In the U.S., the, the dominant genres still are, are absolutely, you know, pop and, and hip-hop and country. Uh, but in a country like Sweden or, or Finland, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hair metal all the way, right? Bands like Hardcore Superstar or Reckless Love or Crash Diet or Crazy Licks, right? These are the popular bands. Uh, so there's plenty of hair metal still to be found. You're probably just not going to propagate it in the U.S. to a large extent, although there is certainly a strong nostalgia for it, right, as evidenced by, uh, you know, it certainly may not happen now, but uh, the stadium tour that was scheduled for this summer uh, with bands like Def Leppard and Poison the Motley Crue, right, uh, these bands can still sell out stadiums, where, like I said, in the mid-'90s, uh, they would have been lucky to sell out my downstairs basement. Right? <laughs> that's really the rebirth, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I've spoken to a lot of the musicians that from this era. I, I mean a lot now. And I've said the same thing to them, that, uh, and it wasn't their fault, that the management put all the eggs in one basket. It was the U.S. market. It was doing really well. And they didn't actually go over to Europe or, or other continents and, and get a following so that if one market shit the, shit the bucket, they could survive in, in the other markets and it killed a lot of the bands. And one of the bands that actually did keep coming over was Bon Jovi. And they were able to weather the storm when the US market went down for that sort of music because every single album, they toured Europe. They were, they were always a, an arena or a stadium act and they kept coming back. And a lot of the fans in Europe never forgot them for that. Absolutely right. The fans that established a more global footprint, the bands that established that more global footprint, certainly it did better, right, after the 80s. And Bon Jovi, you're right, was absolutely at the forefront. Uh, you know, Bon Jovi, without a doubt, as far as bands that originated as hair bands in the 80s, is, is easily the most successful band, you know, still around. But it's a different entity, right? Uh, you know, certainly Bon Jovi had Slippery When Wet in New Jersey. These are some of the landmark hair metal albums, no doubt. Uh, you know, slightly some maturation on uh, Keep the Faith. And then, of course, These Days in uh, 1995 uh, was a dramatically different record in, in terms of its tone and the somber nature and really reflected the times. Um, now, of course, they had Crush with, with a huge single, uh, It's My Life, in 2000. Mm -hmm. I mean, It's My Life was the third biggest single in the world that year. Right. Uh, so certainly they were leading the forefront of this so-called resurrection. Um, but still, Bon Jovi put out an album, uh, you know, in the early 2000s. And yeah, it's a global phenomenon and it's going to go platinum and they're going to tour the world every time. It's going to be one of the top selling events, um, you know, and this is certainly a matter of opinion. Right. But Bon Jovi's released, I guess, four albums over the last uh, decade or so. And, you know, the thing is for hair metal fans, these are not hair metal albums, right? And that's not to take anything away from Bon Jovi, right? I mean, uh, they're doing what they're doing. They're doing what they feel for whatever reason. Uh, but they're not going to write another New Jersey or another Slippery One Wet. And maybe that's just fine. I think for hair metal fans, it's not just fine. <laughs> but everyone's entitled to their own thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Bon Jovi, they, they've got the, well, they had scheduled the new 2020 record to come out this year. And they had a tour lined up behind it that was global. And I'm sure it would have done very well, right? Mm. So I just got a couple of questions, Chris, before I leave you go. Um, sure. Did you see the Dirt movie, and what did you think of it? Of course, yes, of course. I saw the Dirt movie. Uh, Motley Crue is always been one of my favorite bands. Um, I actually I, I got a subscription to Netflix just so I could watch it on the first day that it was available. Um, you know, as a as a hardcore fan, you kind of have mixed emotions on it, right? I mean. On one hand, it's it's a celebration of Motley Crue, right? And, and you're thrilled to see it, and it makes you smile, and it makes you happy, and, and it's terrific. On the other hand, as like a hardcore fan, you struggle with the fact that there's just so much left out. Like a lot of the bands you mentioned that aren't exactly called out in the book, it's hard to leave stuff out. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's just no way you're going to do justice to Motley Crue's career in an 83-minute movie. It just can't be done, right? So, you know... Uh, like yourself, I'm a huge fan of the Karabi album, right? And there wasn't really anything in the movie about that other than, you know, a few cameos or a couple minutes. And you just wish there could have been more stuff there, but you know there can't be. Um, I, I mean, not to mention the fact that they pretty much ignored everything that happened after the year 2000. You know, they jump right from, uh, you know, the mid-90s into, hey, the band's back together, the band's happy, and you see... Um, the All Bad Things tour ending. He's like, well, what happened in the middle? Right? People like us <laughs> know about the fact that, hey, you know, Tommy Lee left the band, right? They had Samantha Maloney as a drummer. There was tons more drama that they just can't smash in there. Or I guess you could. 
Uh, so as a fan, it's a little disappointing that it kind of homogenizes everything. But at the same time, hey, it's better than no movie at all, right? <laughs> now, I've, I read the book, and in my opinion, that's one of the main things that revitalized the genre. I think at the time, people were looking for something like that to go, wow, there's this band that had all this decadence to go along with the music and they found it with that book. It it not only revitalized Motley's career, but I think the whole genre. Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, if you remember at the time that came out, and I'm a huge fan of the book too, right? Um, It's probably one of the best music-related books um, in that genre that there is. Uh, But at the time, you remember there was, remember VH1 started coming out with the Behind the Music, right? Mm -hmm. And they started, the Def Leppard uh, segment was one of their biggest uh, viewing segments, Poison Without, uh, but a lot of people were returning to that type of thing, right? All of a sudden, there was package tours, right? There was the Rock Never Stops tour. There was Poison teaming up with Cinderella, and people filled with this nostalgia were more than happy to fill stadiums to hear these bands again. The bands would reunite. Um, there were the, the Monster Ballad CDs, right? They were suddenly selling, uh, you know, multiple millions of copies that were great at hit stations. Uh, Death Leopard came back with a record like Euphoria, which sounded pretty much like Adrenalize. Uh, even Motley Crue, after all the, the things they had done in the 90s, they kind of got away from their hair metal roots, come out with a record like New Tattoo, right? which this certainly was not of the same quality as something as Dr. Feelgood, but there's no doubt it, it tried to capture that experience of, of sleazy rock. Uh, you know, Poison got back together with C.C. DeVille. They had three summers of just amazingly successful tours. Um, so, yeah, I mean, right around 2000, all that stuff came together um, to really make a, a resurrection where it had just fallen so far in the 90s, no one would have been surprised if you never heard from these bands again. But yet today, you know, these bands are doing pretty well, right? Selling out stadiums or, or you know, Whitesnake is preparing for another run. Um, it's really spectacular, you know, in terms of the ascension of this genre, how far it fell, and the fact that it's still around. You probably, I sure you ask any of these bands, most of them, did they think they were still going to be around 30 years ago today? And they would tell you not a chance, right? Mm. Um, as a Motley Crue fan, how do you feel about them coming back after all the, the song and dance they made about ending it? <laughs> well, it's probably a mixed feelings type of thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, Nikki Six, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I don't doubt. I really don't. I mean, nobody knows for sure. I don't doubt that they were 100% sincere and honest at the time. You know, people say it was all a marketing thing. And, you know, possibly. I don't believe that. I think at the time they were really ready to call it quits. Of course, their relationships had deteriorated again, right? I mean, they were ready to be done with this thing. And I think they saw a lot of value in, you know, not continuing on as a partial band. You mentioned earlier in the discussion, hey, most of these bands don't have all the original members, right? And and some of them are are shadows of what they once were. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to go out on top. And maybe they even missed it a little bit on that front. Um, so I think they were sincere at the time. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, people change. You know, your 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 hard feelings for your bandmates go away. You want to get back to what you love. Um, I, I'm not sure that the finances didn't come into it to some degree. Um, so, hey, you know, to some extent, people are going to rag on them because they went back on their work, right? They tore up a contract. Uh, people that shelled out a lot of money for that final tour might feel, you know, ripped off a little. Um, but as a fan, I think you have to be happy that, hey, having Motley Crue around is better than not having Motley Crue around, assuming they can, uh, you know, still represent themselves on stage and, and maybe even, <laughs> you never know, put out the music that, that's worthy of listening to. So I, I think as a fan, you got to appreciate it. I, I don't think it's the fact that they came back as annoying people. I think the way they ended it, and it was so final. And they made such a big deal of it that they were never coming back. Because normally what a lot of the other bands will do is they'll have a farewell tour and then they'll have another, they'll keep going. But they won't, sure. make, they yes, won't, right? they, yeah, but they won't make as big a deal of it as Motley made. And Nikki Six came out with all these quotes saying, we're not going to do what all the other bands do. It's a joke what they do. They, they, they all say that they're not going to come back. We're not going to be like them. And like all these quotes, they're all still out there. And, yep. you know, I, I'll disagree with you because I think the whole thing is money. I, it, it, you it know, very well could be, right? Yeah, you know, like, this, it's no secret that they don't really get on anyway. Like, they were all on separate no. tour buses and stuff. But I think sure. someone came along and waved a big load of money at them. And they said, right, will that make me swallow enough of my pride 
for all the stuff I said four or five years ago to go out again. And the four of them went, yeah, let's go out again. Oh, trust me, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, there's no doubt there's a hypocritical segment to it. And yeah, if there wasn't a big stadium tour with a big paycheck behind it, they wouldn't be betting back together again. You can be sure of that. Mm-hmm. So I just got one or two more questions. Um, <laughs> sure. What, what's your whole take on Frontiers Records? Um, ah, yes. Uh, with all these bands now that they're bringing them all back to record new music, but what they're also doing is they're taking X guy from this band and Y guy from this band and then C from this band and, and doing all these projects. Are you a fan of that? Well, I think it's on two fronts, right? I mean, on one hand, thank goodness for Frontiers Records, right? Because uh, if you were a hair metal band in the 80s and you had the desire and some creative spark to make new music, uh, generally Frontiers is the place you're going to go these days, right? And they offer us the ability to hear a brand new record from you know someone like Pretty Boy Floyd, uh, which I never would have gotten to hear without that, right? So on one hand, I think it's terrific that they offer an avenue, right? Now, it's not a money-making thing, right? There's not money to be made behind albums for the most part uh, anymore. But as far as the super groups that you mentioned, right, it's tough because some of these records, you listen to them and they're, it's fantastic music, but it, it's hard to get behind it, right? Because you know what it is. It's, it's entirely manufactured, right? If they pick three or four big names, I'd be surprised if those four people were ever in the same room together, maybe once, maybe twice, right? They're sharing internet files over their phones and it's marketed as a super group of such, but you know, it's missing all the things we loved when we were younger as fans, right? Uh, it's manufactured music. So on one hand, you have to say, hey, it's better than no music. But, you know, is it really, is it the real article? Probably not. Chris, do you know what it's missing? Live shows. What the? There's so many of them. Yeah, None certainly of, live shows. And, and I've, I've promoted a ton of the bands. I've had the musicians on. And I don't know whether it's lip service. They've all said that they'd love to play live, but... The opportunity for them to play live now is more or less nil because taking their schedules aside, if you're a promoter and you're booking these guys, they're going to want to say, right, you had all these hits, you have to play them, and then you're left with what? One or two songs off the record they've done at, at best? At best. And no, that's why that's why none of them really play, in my opinion, because like George Lynch does a ton of projects, right? Yes. He, they're going to book him as Lynch Mob. So he's going to play Lynch right. Mob stuff. Like they're not going to book Sweet Lynch. And those albums are really good. And he did an album called with Dirty Shirley with some European singer that's really good as well. But when they're, promo- when they're booking George Lynch, they're going to book Lynch Mob. They're not going to book any, any of the other projects he did. And that's really the unfortunate nature of it, right? I mean, uh, you know, you're right. There is no opportunity to bring this new music to bear in a live setting, uh, even with the more popular band. Right. I mean, take a, a band like Poison. Um, I stopped going to see Poison in concert several years ago, right? Because the same, give or take one or two songs, it's the same 10 or 13 songs every time. And it gets stale for people. But I think what we have to recognize is, you know, 80% of the people in that audience, if they happen, if they sneak in a new song or even a, you know, an album cut from someone that we might want to hear, like Play Dirty from Look at the Cat Dragon, these people are going to get up, use the bathroom, and go get a beer. Right. I mean, it's it's the it's suicide for these people to to introduce new music in their sets when 90 percent of the audience is there to, you know, nostalgically hear the hits of their youth. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, hardcore fans like myself, there's nothing I wouldn't give to see uh, a band like Poison come and break out some older cuts that they don't normally play or some of these newer bands get a chance to introduce uh, new material. Uh, I remember seeing uh, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister. Um, and I forget uh, what year it was. It was probably sometime in the in the 90s. And he was solo at the time. And, you know, he was plowing through the Twisted Sister hits. And the crowd goes crazy. And I was a big fan of his Widowmaker band. I'm not sure if you're if you yeah. familiar with them. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I love that album. Right? So he stops the show at one point And he addresses us. And he says, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to play a song you probably never heard of. Right? And you can see he's despondent. And he says, hey, sometimes things don't fail for any good reason. They just fail because the timing's not right. Certainly the timing wasn't right for a D. Snyder uh, slash solo album in the mid-90s. Anyway, he breaks into Widowmaker, right? Which, as if you've heard it, is a huge rock song, right? It's fantastic. Mm. Uh, so I'm thrilled, right? And I'm banging my head, and I look around, and everybody's gone. Everybody had the bathroom. So no one knows what he's playing, so you're right. I mean, there's just not really an opportunity uh, for new music to be introduced 
into these uh, nostalgia-based band sets are certainly not the supergroups. And I think it's a shame. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story before I leave you go. I was at a Def Leppard concert a few years ago here, probably about seven or eight years ago. And they're playing like a 20,000 seat or they were out in one of the package tours. So they they break into promises from uh, Euphoria. Uh, I I have all the I have I have all the Leopard albums, right? I've seen them in Europe. They play different songs in Europe than they play over here. I saw them play Wasted from On Through the Night a couple of times. Oh wow! Right, so you can tell I'm I'm a big fan. And yes. they break they break into promises, and there's these two two girls next to me, and <laughs> one of them says to me, um. What, what song is that? And I says, are you a big fan? I'm a huge fan. Is that a new song? And I'm like, oh. uh, that's from 1999, the Euphoria record. Oh, I don't have that. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, that was a single as well. <laughs> and and I, all they wanted to do was like, I just want to hear Hysteria. I just want to hear Pyromania, maybe one or two from High and Dry and Adrenalize. And then I'm going home. And it pisses me off that a, a lot, and I've I've spoken to a lot of bands, and they just can't play any of those songs. That right. they, and it's it's tough on them because as musicians, they'd love to change it up. And uh, you know, I spoke to Michael Sweet. I said, "What song, Michael, would you like to drop from the set?" And he said, "I'd love not to do Calling on You, but we can't drop <laughs> we can't drop it because it was one of our big hits." Um, they dropped. They drop honestly on in a lot of the sets, but what, what you'll what you'll find with a lot of these bands is when the set is done, they won't say what the what they played. They'll gripe about what they didn't play. Like they'll play twenty songs, and nineteen of them everyone will know, and then they'll go, "Oh, they didn't play this." And I'm like, Jesus Christ! Can, can you can, can you throw me a bone here and play one or two, you know, lesser known songs and be happy that you got the eighteen that you like? That's the thing, right? It's, it's the true fans and the musicians themselves are, are dying to hear this stuff, but they just can't do it, right? especially now that everything's a package tour, right? You're not getting 17 songs. Uh, you're not like Guns N' Roses where you're going out and playing for three or four hours. You get 13 songs. And, you know, for a band like Def Leppard, they're, they're not getting out of there without playing Pyromania, right? They, they can't, right? And you, they sit back and they look at their set list, and maybe they want to play Wasted uh, or, you know, Billy's Got a Gun. What do you drop? you know, where they don't get crucified for dropping one of the so-called hits. It's a no-win situation. Mm. I, I've, I saw, before I leave you go, I saw Robert Plant years ago in Dublin. He was in a small, uh, sm very small venue. He was doing a lot of covers at the time. He had a covers record out. And he wasn't even going under the name Robert Plant. So he plays the whole set. And then these two guys next to me lean over to me and said, that was a load of shite. And I said, how come? He didn't play any Led Zeppelin. And I'm like, Oh. Did you not know this before he was doing it? I'm like, you know, he's he's not going out as Robert Plant. He's going out as someone else, someone else's name promoting a record full of covers. I'm like, you just can't please everybody all the time. No, and hey, nothing's more uh, damaging to artistic integrity than the quote unquote casual fan, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's enough of them out there. So, Chris, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you go. Can you uh, let people know where people can buy the book? Yeah, certainly. So. Uh, it's available on Amazon, of course, uh, but you can go out to my website, www.hairmetalforever.com, and you can link to it through there. Ricky, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I'm glad you liked the book. I hope this helps other people get introduced to it. Mm, I could have talked to you for hours. <laughs> hey, you can call me anytime. I enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, Chris. Take care of yourself. Have a good rest of the day. All right. All right. Thanks, Richie. Bye-bye. No problem. Bye. Oh, you know, you've had a long week when you're mixing the show and you swear to God you had a beer in front of you just two minutes ago on the desk, and you don't know where it is. And, and that's kind of my week right now, is realizing that um, for some reason, the beer has made its halfway across the room, and uh, it's nowhere near the recording setup. Anyways, that's my problem, not yours. Anyone notice how much more we're drinking these days being quarantined? Even though Richie and I, we're going to work every day. I, I don't know if he's drinking more or not, but I definitely have noticed that... Uh, that my intake is definitely a hell of a lot higher than it was before. And I drink some expensive damn beer as well. So, um, yeah, this is uh, this is costing me some money here. All right, anyways, back to the business at hand. 
And uh, that was Richie's talk with Christopher P. Hilton, all about his new book on hair metal. And if you go to Amazon, don't put Chris Hilton, because if you do, you'll get some books, but they'll have nothing to do with anything that uh, was talked about today and probably nothing you want to buy anyways. The key is either put in Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal or search for Christopher P. Hilton and you'll get what you want. And I know it's available other places too. I just call it Amazon because, um, you know, my girlfriend gives me shit about constantly. I buy everything from Amazon. It's easy. It's quick. And, uh, you know, that also reminds you that when you see something and go, ooh, I want to have that, and you go to that page, it says, hey, you already bought this. And you go back and go, oh, yeah, I did. Anyways, hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope it gives you enough incentive to go out. And if you're into 80s hair metal, that uh, you'll buy Christopher's book. So what is in store on Focus on Metal for next week? Well, you know what? I'm not really sure. I'm thinking right now, Richie went back and he did a retrospective on an album that is uh, 30-something years old this year. Pretty cool album. And he went back and he talked to the uh, the bass player involved in that album and got a lot of good stuff about it. And so we're thinking that that's probably what we're going to do next week. But the downside of that was that a thing actually came out to only about 40 minutes. And with the, kind of the schedules and all that, we don't know whether we're going to actually be able to get together on Skype to do anything to kind of round that out to an hour. So Richie's actually reached out to somebody else that we've talked to an awful lot that has also been involved in that album. And seeing about doing a supplemental interview to kind of bolt onto that and get two people talking about this classic metal album. And so we're thinking that right now that's probably what is in store for you next week. But you know what? A lot of time between now and then, so we're just going to have to see. But as far as this week, thanks for listening. But, uh, yeah, this puppy is indeed done. So for Richie, myself, everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week and be safe until we talk to you again next week. And as we say always, remember Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.